This is Radical Love Life, an ongoing series of podcasts and special events where we explore faith outside the boxes. Hosted by Mark Dilcom and Kelly Wilson. So, hey, Kelly. Hey, Mark. How are you? I am well. In fact, I'm freaking awesome. You are. You, you look like you're freaking awesome. I am. Life is great. You know, 2024 is starting out uh, just so well for me. We're together. That's right. We're recording another episode. We're leaning into a new season here with all kinds of great things in store, including today. And how are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. It's sunny outside. I still have yet to break out my winter coat. I know. Uh, I'm crazy. still wearing sandals with socks. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's a, I, I that's care, a definite dad look. Yeah. I don't care about fashion anymore. <laughs> totally oh, don't. come on. Come on. Come on. So what are we talking about today, my friend? Um, today, we're going to talk about the big topic of narcissism. Whoa. Are and you calling me a narcissist? Not, not oh, at all. Okay. okay. Or, do you feel like you're a narcissist? Some people might think I am. <laughs> I'd say, I'd listening to the the book by the author we're talking to today, there were some things in there where I, I definitely recognized narcissism in some people I knew and had to kind of check myself a little bit. There were okay. some things where I'm like, hmm, maybe I'm not as not as comfortable with my human limitations. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, anyway, um, today we're going to be talking with uh, with our friend, uh, Dr. Chuck DeGroat. Um, he is the author of When Narcissism Comes to Church. Oh, my. Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, which is entirely in line with what, what I is my passion. Absolutely. So I'm um, looking forward to this. So uh, Chuck is a professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan and senior fellow at New Begin House of Studies in San Francisco. Um, he's also a licensed therapist, spiritual director, uh, author of a couple of other books, The Toughest People to Love and Wholeheartedness. Um, we're really grateful to have Chuck here today. So thank you for being here. It's great to uh, see you in your, your winter wonderland. Yeah, greetings from the snow globe, you guys, uh, from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we've got a blizzard coming through. So. Yeah, it's good to come to you. My my snow globe protects me from spiritual abuse, so uh, it's really helpful. <laughs> if we only it has no all superpowers, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you can make that happen, Chuck, you've got something. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> well, it's good to have you on here. So, uh, Kelly, you've got uh, some questions. So, um, our way. Yeah, let's start right in talking about um, narcissism. Uh, you know that a lot of us have feel like we have some kind of working definition of narcissism. It's been talked about a lot in the news and, you know, op-ed pieces over the last, you know, like since the 2016 election, there's certain politicians that have been diagnosed both clinically and by armchair psychologists as narcissistic, uh, you know, and we hear, and I always thought I knew what narcissism was. I remember hearing the, you know, the, the mythical story of Narcissus who's gazing at himself in the water and, you know, lo loves himself too much. Um, but in your book, you explore some more, um, some more technical and also I think some more spiritual uh, definitions of narcissism. So maybe we should start with talking about just like, what is, what is narcissism? Yeah, well, so that, that's such a good question. And, and you're right. I do try to sort of expand it. Uh, particularly using the Enneagram as a lens to look at nine different faces of narcissism, right? But when you're talking about sort of the classic psychological understanding of it, you're talking about things like grandiosity and attention-seeking and uh, entitlement, 
uh, low empathy. And, and so when you see these op-eds about, about particular politicians who we shall not name, who we hope will never become president again, we, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we maybe see some of those classic definitions, right? That grandiosity, that attention seeking. But I, I try to nuance narcissism fit, right? And, and even take the story all the way back to uh, the early story of scripture. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand that, that uh, uh, as I talk about in the book, uh, narcissism is born out of uh, an evasion of, of longing, uh, an avoidance of our limitations. Uh, it's born out of a sense of control. And so, uh, and we see that show up in the, the nine faces of narcissism, these nine different forms of of uh, not nine different false selves in a sense, right? Nine different ways of trying to make life work in the world. And so I think it's really important not just to talk about the kind of the classic psychological definition that looks at grandiosity and entitlement, um, but also that that ev- evasion of of longing, that avoidance of human limitation um, and that desire for control that each of us has. So would you would you say that that idea of the narcissist as someone who simply loves themselves is not is not exactly a correct way of thinking about it? Yeah, you know that's that's way too simplistic. Uh, and I think my my sense is that uh, narcissism is born out of one who hasn't learned to love himself or herself. Right? Narcissism is actually born out of shame. It's born out of self disgust, self contempt. The one who is anchored in love, is well attached, uh, knows she's loved, um, experiences delight, loved, her beloved, all those kinds of things. She's not going to be prone to uh, grasping for that love in some other way. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, that's it's too simplistic and, and really unhelpful to say that narcissism is simply self-love. Mm-hmm. So, Chuck, um, I'm a. It's fascinating because I'm glad we started with this because, first of all, it kind of blows my um, definition of what I thought a narcissist was. But it's something you just said and something that I feel internal. So based on if somebody truly loves themselves in a healthy, holistic way, are they capable of being a narcissist? And I would almost posit that they it would be difficult because, to your point, the narcissism actually is a result of somebody not having the ability to love themselves, that they actually are, they have suffered some damage uh, through whatever sh- uh, form, including shame, trauma, abuse, et cetera, all. So it's the masking. So if somebody is whole, they really, they wouldn't, uh, they really almost would not have the capacity to be a narcissist. I think that's spot on. I mean, I think narcissism is really a self-protective system, right? And And you're exactly right. It's born out of trauma and shame and Hurt people who hurt people, right? No. As Richard Rohr says, uh, you, you don't transform your pain, you're bound to transmit it, right? And so yeah. there's that sense in which narcissism really is. This, this is, by the way, where I find empathy for those who are on the narcissistic spectrum because they're in pain and they're simply living out of these self-protective mechanisms. Imagine a, a fortress wall and they're just throwing grenades over the fortress wall. And they're incapable of really entering into vulnerable relationship with someone else. Uh, and, and that's a terrifying and lonely place to be. What's amazing mm. is that some of the people that are in these, you know, in these positions or in this, this habit um, that, that, you're, that you're talking about right now are actually 
praised for the qualities that they exude as a narcissist. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that a little bit about how some leadership positions that the some of these qualities get, um, you know, that that people are attracted to these qualities, or they or they transform them into some positive that they're not that they're not. Yeah, yeah, they really cut both ways. I mean. I it's interesting because my work with this really goes back to the late 90s, early 2000s in, in the church planting world and in and around church planter assessments where, you know, the assessment was practically a setup for narcissism. Um, was, you know, you'd, you'd kind of go through and, and look at the different categories and you'd say, on the one hand, I understand that a church planter ought to be, let's say, inspiring. And, and yet, we weren't interrogating those categories or interrogating the person well enough. Right. And, and mm -hmm. we were simply saying, well, he's inspiring and he's influential and he's, you know, a great communicator and he's fantastic on the stage. And, and no one was asking in service of what, or why, or what's going on there? Or, you know, what's the backstory. And so uh, we were simply sort of uh, accepting what we were seeing at face value. And so we, we want to sort of interrogate some of those, those categories. Right. It's interesting. You don't often, you know, it seems like the opposite of that would be, you know, finding leaders that are humble, vulnerable, yeah. aware of their limitations, but we don't often look yeah. for those. Like that's not usually on the, you know, the job description. Well, that wasn't on the church planner assessment. Uh, it turns out uh, yes. vulnerability, humility, uh, curiosity, which has become my, my favorite word. Uh, no, that you don't find those things. you you know, you, you look for someone with certainty, uh, you look for someone who walks around with a kind of confidence and even gravitas. Right. And, and, uh, and this is where even now, as I'm talking to people who've been in and around church planning for 20 years, uh, many are second guessing, not just the assessments, but the systems that, uh, you know, that, uh, that have enabled this. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask the question then, since you, that was your experience and you saw the assessment tool and, you know, and now reflect back on that, like, okay, there's probably a different way you should go about that. Is this, this almost sounds systematic with a lot of denominations and I'm not going to pick on any particular ones because that's not what this is about, but yeah. I just feel like what you just said, I thought, wow, you're right. So many probably use this as their tool to say, oh, you are you're vibrant and you present well and you can communicate and you can engage and not even thinking about, well, or maybe they did think about, maybe they did know some of the weaker areas of a, of a pastor or somebody who's going to be a spiritual leader in this, in this community and congregation. And they're like, yeah, you know, we'll live with that. And are we not seeing some of the consequences today of that? And maybe it's actually been going on for years, but it's just because of social media and awareness and, everything else that like people are realizing, uh, we've, we have some, uh, unhealthy situations going on here. Yeah. And, and I often say it's not 20 years old. It's not 30 years old. I mean, we're, we're talking about sort of a Constantinian imperialist kind of mentality, you know, th yeah. this goes way, way back. Right. right and yeah, so, yeah. uh, the systems we've just sort of inherited over the centuries, uh, systems that, uh, ennoble, uh, power and confidence and certainty, um, you know, these kinds of things over humility, uh, curiosity, vulnerability. I mean, I remember, 
I remember years ago, even if I used the language of vulnerability, they'd say, no, 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 no. We don't want that. That We don't want men who are vulnerable. I don't know, you know quite what you're getting at there, Chuck, but we don't want weak men going into church planting. Obviously, this was in a very patriarchal, complementarian context, right? And so, right, right. Uh, so they were they were weary of words, afraid of words like that. Oh, wow. Does that start to become sort of a gender stereotype issue where, you know, we're talking about, you know, we want our men to be stereotypical men and yeah. not yeah. show yeah. womenly virtues. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, and it, you know, you probably are aware of of uh, the church planting world dominated by men. It's largely patriarchal, and and uh, having worked with many, many men over many years, I mean, I've done hundreds, if not thousands, of of assessments over the years. Uh, many of them uh, are scared. They are fragile, like I am, by the way. They are fearful. They do carry around stories of shame. There is some pain or trauma. Or, or from their past. And yet there's no invitation to be known uh, for that to be a part of their story for the shame to be metabolized and digested so that there, there's growing sense of health and healthy self-confidence versus kind of an un unhealthy uh, superiority. And so, uh, so yeah, it has been going on for a long time. And uh, it's it's not just about the personality of one church planter, but it's sort of baked into our systems. So can we go back? You mentioned something I've not considered that. So if we go back to the very beginning of uh, of church, uh, so at what point was it? Was it in the first hundred years in the early? As uh, it more uh, morphed from an experience more into the philosophy than into the institutions of early church, that an authoritarian position took and because it was a male dominated culture, of course, back then, this is, are you, did I hear you say that this started way back when yeah. it's been brought forward? Well, I mean, I think the story can go back even further. I mean, you see okay. these stories in scripture, right? You see, yeah. um, you see power and ego and um, manipulation and exploitation of women in particular, right? And all of this, right? And so, but I think, and I'm not a church historian, but, but, uh, but I think about a book that I read a number of years ago now called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, about the early centuries of the, of, of the church, where in a, in a season, in a time of powerlessness and weakness, Christians really thrive um, in, in house churches and smaller contexts, in uh, uh, loving and being loved and taking care of the poor, right? But with uh, the rise of Constantine and, and uh, a growing sense of power, that uh, churches, pastors, bishops had, there was this sense that uh, now we've got control, we've got power, we've got the power of the purse, um, we've got mm -hmm. the power of Rome. And I do think that there's that sense that once you have power, and I see this, by the way, as narcissism evolves in pastors, once you have power, you become more self-protective. You want to protect that power. Uh, the church goes about protecting its power. There's a great reformation centuries later, right? obviously. But I, I see this in individual church planters who start out more humbly. I mean, I've done assessments with uh, men and with women who start out in a place where they say to me, I'd never want that to happen to me. I don't want to be that kind of leader. I want to be a humble leader. Um, I want to look more like Jesus than Mark Driscoll, you know, and then 10 mm -hmm. years in, things are going well. They've got a big stage. 
uh, they're on YouTube, they've got lots of followers, whatever it is. And now they're becoming more insulated and they're beginning to protect their power. And I'm beginning to hear the stories of, of self-protection and maybe manipulation and exploitation. And so I think whenever we as individuals or as institutions or the church uh, are in places where we become increasingly protective of our power, there's a tendency towards narcissism. You know, we definitely heard a few stories over the last few years of, um, particularly of like sexual abuse that gets covered up in some of these church systems where they want to insulate the leader yeah. from any yeah. kind of, um, you know, of any kind of criticism and kind of keep those things under the, um, under the rug, keep the, the image up, keep the checks and letters coming in. Yeah. Yeah, there's several notable uh, cases, uh, yeah, situations where that uh, has caused. And to your point, uh, what you were just saying, Chuck, yeah, I would, it, it, I would, I would think in your assessment that, of course, if anybody said, "Well, I want to be X," and you uh, uh, administering the assessment would obviously see that as a problem if they suggested that they did want to be, you know, um, whatever. I can't, you know, can't mm -hmm. find an example that's appropriate at the moment, but, but. You would you would be alarmed, but it yeah. just the system because I I think from my own personal um, involvement with the Episcopal Church as a as, you know being on vestry and being a member of the Episcopal denomination and member of a congregation there's there's elements that I love about the church and our progressive nature, but then also I can't help but also look at the the the, the patriarchy that still exists and. They're aware, they know this, but it's there and they will, they, they will protect the church. It's just, this is what they're going to do because you also have people who have their livelihoods that are attached to it. And yes, they're all well-meaning and yes, I love these people and, 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 yeah. but also I struggles. And then you mentioned the house churches and that's why I yeah. gravitate towards small groups yeah. uh, is uh, where I find my, my faith most yeah. nurtured. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. This is why why we can't boil narcissism down to a, a problem of an individual, uh, one person. If we yeah. just did a better, had a better testing process for that one person, this is where, you know, mm -hmm. we who are embedded in denominations and networks and things like that have to look at the, the cultures, and which include things like our organizational structures and um, our control systems and our power structures and and even our um, various rituals and routines and liturgies and the stories, the, the narratives and stories we've told ourselves about, uh, about our denomination, um, uh, all of those things sort of have to be interrogated in the process for us to understand how, how and where narcissism power, protection of power is embedded. And that, you know, that takes a lot of humility that takes self-awareness and not, you know, not a lot of people, not a lot of institutions are, are willing to do that, you know? Are we now um, getting into, you know, we've been talking a lot about the narcissism of individuals, talking about the narcissism of systems, because I know that's yeah. something that you also get into yeah. in your book. How does that manifest? Yeah. Itself? Well, it, you know, the reality is, is that it manifests in a similar way, uh, except the system itself is now protecting power. The system itself uh, feels entitled. Uh, I think one of the stories, I sometimes forget the stories that I tell even in the book, but I, I do think one of the stories I tell is of a, of a large, I, I don't tell the name of it, but it's a large discipleship ministry 
that uh, a friend of mine uh, stepped in as as the leader of, and uh, he was he was shocked when he came into this ministry where he expected to find women and men longing to follow Jesus more deeply and sincerely and with integrity and faithfulness. That so much of the talk was about we can be better than that other discipleship ministry. And it was comparison and competition and power. And if, if only we produce these better resources, and if only we get our brand out there in a better way. And I remember he called me up, and this was this was probably a decade ago. He called me up dejected, like, I, I got to get out of here. Uh, there's nothing about this system that uh, seems to me to be like the way of Jesus. And mm -hmm. so or the way of radical love, as you might put it on your podcast, you know, that yeah kind of radical love that Father Rohr talks about. And so, yeah, and, and so there's that, and that can be embedded in systems and enabled, as I said a few minutes ago, in, in our organizational structures, in the stories that we've told ourselves for years, uh, in who controls power and how, et cetera. So, so how do we begin to attack or pick apart narcissism? Because narcissism in itself seems like it's, it's built to defend itself from outside attack. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, being an outside critic coming into a narcissistic system or even talking to a narcissistic individual um, is, is difficult and almost makes the situation worse to confront yeah. head on. That's why, you know, at, you know, certain family dinners, you, everybody knows who that one person is who you just kind of defer to. Um, <laughs> that, yeah. um, you know, or in church situations or business situations mm -hmm. or, or whatnot. Um, is it, is it only possible for a narcissist or narcissistic system to start to reform once it has some kind of like self revelation or some kind of, you know, like the three ghosts have to come and visit Scrooge in the middle of the night or how? I think that's true of individuals, and I think that's true of systems. Um, mm -hmm. That without some some self awareness, without some self revelation, without uh, a real sense of of being humbled, and maybe even again, as Roar talks about, humiliated, mm -hmm. there there really isn't that possibility of of a shift or movement because we have to ask ourselves. And and uh, I think I'm talking to two middle aged white guys. I'm a middle aged white guy. You know, how, how does power exist in my life, in my world, in my body, in my being, in the institution that I'm in? And what's yeah. my relationship to power and how am I seeking to preserve it or, or live, live in a way that I'm, I'm able to sort of give it away or empower others? Um, and, and, you know, again, I, I said this earlier, that's tough, not just for individuals, but for systems. Like I'll, I'll have, let's say a, a church call me up or denomination and say, well, we want to move in that direction. But when I uh, share the cost with them or where I sh when I share the, the work that it will take, they're like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, we're, we're okay. You mm -hmm. know, because uh, the cost is just too significant. They'll lose power. They'll lose revenue. They'll, all those things that um, buttress power, right? <laughs> exactly. And just to be clear, Chuck, you're not talking about their investment for, to pay you to help them. You're talking about the incurred cost uh, systematically, what's going to be, what is the total price for this? Uh, yeah, no, to, that's, to that's exactly it. That's yeah. exactly it. You, you can mess with this, you know, we can maybe change a little, tweak a little bit there, but don't mess with that. Um, yeah. you can, we can maybe change a little bit of, of the structure, but, 
um, the five men who are leading the organization, it's a non-negotiable that they're going to stay in power, you know, that kind of thing. And so uh, I think it's, it's just hard for us to, to pivot in a direction uh, to, to shift from self-awareness to action. Mm -hmm. So I like your analogy that you just used. Um, you know, I speak openly about my sobriety, uh, you know, and something that's saved my life. Uh, but what got me there was, of course, that moment of clarity to where, you know, I came to the dead end and like, okay, well, if I continue this way, uh, I most assuredly am going to, you know, end in a very destructive way and like in my life, not maybe that moment, but it was, I could see it, <laughs> you know, like I could see my future right there. And, and and knew that I had to change absolutely everything if I was to, to survive. So, you know, 11 years plus forward into this journey, very grateful for that. But I had to have that hard, hard, hard reset. Like there was just nothing else that, because I, I was an alcoholic for years, years and years and years, years. I had people asking me, but I was the last person to know until that moment that I had my moment of clarity. Is this, is, is this what you're suggesting is going to have that uh, must happen for some church systems or denominations or yeah, individuals. I, I think I think that's it. I, life had become unmanageable, right? And, and uh, <laughs> in a sense, life had I, unmanageable. Yes. Yeah, and I had to befriend that powerlessness, that powerlessness personally, that powerlessness institutionally, yeah. right? And so, yeah. yeah, I think I think that yeah, it'd be wise for institutions at times to practice the twelve steps, you know, yeah. and. Yeah. Uh, because there's there's a radical truth telling that that has to happen in oneself and in one's relationships, but I just think we evade the truth about ourselves and about the systems. And we and again, I mean, I I, I talk about this like I'm immune to it, but I want to protect my sense of power. I I kind of like where I am. I'm I have tenure now as a prof. I was in pastoral ministry. I I want to lose any of that stuff. I want to like have my cake and eat it too, you know and. Um, so we're all, none of us is immune to this. And I think that's another one of the points of the book is, is this is not an us versus them, or this is like, we've got it figured out, or I've got the right theology, but the, th this really does implicate all of us. All of us have to take that journey, uh, to that honest admission that life has become unmanageable, um, that I'm powerless, uh, that I've tried to control my life, whether I'm an Enneagram one or a three or a five or a seven, or even a nine, we even see narcissism in nines, you know, um, wow. And, uh, and, and move to that place of humility and curiosity. I love it. So for our listeners that are not familiar with the Enneagram, uh, I'm a seven myself. Um, can you enlighten us just a little bit? Because that was fascinating. You brought yeah, that in. I think early we actually need to do an episode on the Enneagram. We really do. Um, yeah. so how does that apply to your work and just kind of build that out for our listeners that are not familiar with the Enneagram? So if you can, Chuck. Yeah, well, so the, the Enneagram, many of us believe is it an ancient tool with a contemporary, uh, understandings, musings on, on its application, uh, but, but really understands nine different ways of operating and relating in the world. Um, nine, you might say nine different masks that we wear, nine different forms of self-protection that are born out of, um, our stories and, and probably somewhat a product of, of nature as well. And, um, and so, what I reflect on is the perfectionistic narcissism of the one, um, the benevolent narcissism of, of the two, um, the success addiction of, of the three, and, and on and on. Um, and uh, really, what I think what's helpful about that, and this is what I say in the book, this is a kind of experimental, I put it out there, 
sort of like I'm 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 soliciting some feedback. Like th this is this is my stuff, uh, and and I'm testing it out. But most who've come back to me have said it's fascinating because I thought that the classic, like Claudio Naranjo, one of the early Enneagram psychologists, said by the way that the seven <laughs> is the classic narcissist. Sorry to say. Probably. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and most people, oh, I mean, <laughs> you, you might guess most people would say it's a three or a seven or an eight, but what I want to do is I want to sort of reflect on, you know, the perfectionism of, of the one, the intellectual superiority of, of the five, the, uh, the hypervigilance of the six, you know, um, mm -hmm. think about some of those hypervigilant fundamentalist theologians out there, right. That are like, oh, yeah. um, yeah. addicted to certainty right um of yeah. course the the power addiction to power of the eight et cetera et cetera and so w what are these different faces of narcissism and how do we how do we see each and every one of our enneagram types as a way of evading longing avoiding our limitations and and controlling um our lives and so it's i just i hope it's a helpful grid for some to say how does this fit into my story when it's so easy when we're talking about narcissism to say that's about that politician or that pastor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. And that's, you know, certainly, um, engaging with, with your book. I've, I've had to do some self-reflection and go, oh yeah, I guess there are some powerful positions, you know, or, you know, certain social locations in my life that I do yeah. to protect Ooh, sure. to some degree. And, um, you know, and it's always, it's always good to continue you know, I try to live a life of continual self-reflection where I'm always yeah. doing, doing the best I can with what I know, but staying open to the next new thing because I don't that's have right. it all figured out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that's it. I mean, I think if we live with that sense of, of openness to uh, what's, what's happening within us and, and take it a step deeper to our stories of a pain, of trauma, and our strategies for self-protection, um, we're well on our way to living lives of curiosity and humility, but uh, th the reality is, and, and maybe you've seen this too, but I've seen this in spades in the church. Um, there are many who are not willing to engage in those kinds of conversations and no. um, some no. who think that those kinds of conversations are signs of weakness uh, and, and don't, don't like the kind of vulnerability, the invitation to vulnerability that I'm offering. So I'm going to throw something out there and, 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 to your point where you say where somebody doesn't want to have this conversation, think about certain denominations that they had to deal with the same-sex marriage issue. So right. we've seen the Episcopal Church have to deal with it. The Presbyterian Church had to deal with it. Uh, let's see, the Lutherans had to deal with that. You know, as it was, we see what's inside the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, ELCA. Uh, we see the United Methodist Church going through that right now. And I look at that thinking, okay, you're making decisions that, clearly are based on, I don't know, well, I, I, I actually can't say what you're basing them on, but other than fear or just that we, we refuse to be self-reflective, but is that, is that narcissism or is that fear? And is there an interplay between narcissism and fear? Yeah. I mean, I, I think narcissism is ex an extreme form of self-protection, right? A fearful self-protection, right? So yeah, it could be fear. Um, but I, but I think when, when we're talking about narcissism, we're talking about someone who's so insulated that there's not even a, um, there's not even a, a willingness to sort of open up just a little bit to 
to a possibility that I'm wrong or to open up a little bit to curiosity or a little bit that maybe we, we haven't gotten this story right as a church over the course of the last decades or centuries, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the painful part, I think, in, in the conversation that you're talking about in these denominations is there's not, not a willingness to say, maybe we've missed something. You know, like how I, I, I grew up in the reformed tradition. I'm sort of a, a son of the reformed tradition. And I see this all over the place in the reformed tradition where, you know, we, we say we take sin very seriously, but there's not really a sense that we've missed much. <laughs> there's not really a, what we would call an epistemic humility, that sense of maybe we've got it wrong. Like mm-hmm. maybe we, maybe we missed something here. Maybe we need to kind of reopen that book and ask a few more questions. And so I know, I think where there's that lack of personal epistemic humility, there's a tendency toward fear, self-protection, and maybe even narcissism. Mm-hmm. Well, because the reason why I brought this up is that it's playing at multiple levels here. You have the denomination itself. And of course, there are synods that in the, the house of bishops of these respective denominations and how they've done this. And now you, the most recent example with the United Methodist Church, right? They voted to say, okay, we're, we're going to allow the individual um, congregations to make the decision of, are they going to stay or, uh, or go within their respective uh, synods, I think, or because they don't have diocese in their yeah. denomination, whatever organizational structure. But how some decide to, yes, we're going to progress and go forward, and others simply say, nope, I'm not. And they may be in the same town. You know, is it, is it, is it the personality of the congregation? What, what drives that? I mean, it's interesting to me how how this is all that interplay takes out, uh, plays yeah. out. Yeah. And, and I think part of what you get at is what, what do you need to protect? You know, um, yeah. are there people, are there systems, are there forms of polity, are there creeds, council, councils, um, documents, um, attendance, money, resources, all these things that we want to protect that don't allow us reputation, you know, um, influence followers, all these things that keep us from, moving toward places of growing curiosity and, and humility and openness and radical love, you might say. And so, um, and that's, each of us has to sort of ask ourselves the question, what am I, what do I, what am I trying to protect? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, that's hard. I mean, that's a hard one for me too. And I, I do this for a living with other people, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still protecting a lot. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, even just in the last couple of weeks, I've seen um, online, I, I still, I, you know, sometimes I still go to Twitter, even though it's mm-hmm. like the thing like not hot, to do. hotbed yeah. of polarized <laughs> views. Oh my God. Yeah. X. Uh, and it's definitely uh, exciting there. Uh, that I, I see, um, so, you know, some younger religious thinkers who are trying to break some of these systems by, by taking them head on. Um, and just making some s- some statements that you would think would get somebody to stop and think. You know, I saw a tweet the other day um, where someone said, you know, if if Paul was wrong about Jesus coming back in his lifetime, maybe he didn't get it right about homosexuality. Or, um, mm-hmm. yeah, or, um, and that was um, Mason, Mason Manega was the, yeah. the writer of that. Um, and then, uh, a few weeks before that, uh, Tyler Huckabee posted something about, it was like, well, if the Bible was wrong about slavery, maybe we have gay marriage wrong too. And, yeah. and mm. rather than somebody going, huh, 
you know, that's interesting. That does get me thinking a little bit. Just pure vitriolic attack after attack after attack that it was the walls went up of like, you have attacked my orthodoxy in such a way that I can't, I can't even begin to consider another way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Right. And so, so I'm a therapist, uh, and, and I, I see this also through the lens of the autonomic nervous system and, and, and the self-protective mechanisms within, right. And so immediately, instead of someone stopping and trying to get centered and saying, how does that impact me? They go into fight mode. The, mm -hmm. the sympathetic nervous system kicks in cortisol, adrenaline, and, and they're off to the races with tweet after tweet after tweet of, of defense and argument. And, um, and that's not the pathway to curiosity and humility, right? And so this is where we've got to do our own work. And I, and I get it. I have, I have some empathy. I mean, these are women and men out there who feel like when a statement like that is made, like if, if that's allowed to be put out there into the world, we might just lose everything, you know, the foundations, which to me um, reflects, is a theological reflection. I mean, isn't God, you know, isn't God big enough to hold these things at some level for these people who supposedly right. have such a big orthodoxy, right? Right, um, right. But God, God doesn't seem all that powerful, I think, at times in, in these um, theologies and in these, you know, uh, in these particular networks and institutions and stuff. And so I see it playing out. I, I to be honest, I just get really sad um, because it's just uh, sympathetic nervous system fight versus sympathetic nervous system fight in a lot of these back and forth. And it, it doesn't forward the movement of insight, awareness and love ultimately. Mm. So can we get political for a second without naming names? Um, well, actually we're going to have to, I see case. the name of the person. Yeah, yeah sorry. Name. I actually have to. So there's a great, um, uh, piece in the New York Times, at least I think it is, that's my personal opinion, um, in the New York Times, uh, that yesterday on January 11th, the title of the piece is Trump is connecting with a different type of evangelical voter. They're not just the church going conservative activist who once dominated the GOP. That's the subtitle to it. So it's a very long piece. Uh, we're not going to break it all down on the time we have here, but the point of it is the people that he's attracting and other politicians of his nature overwhelmingly don't go to church anymore, but yet they call themselves Christians. I think regardless of what they call themselves, there's a, there's a CIA pro profiler out there named Gerald Post, who's written a lot on this, uh, of narcissism, you might say, in politicians. Um, he looks at Bill Clinton, he looks at mm -hmm. Donald Trump. Sure. And, um, what's interesting there is he says, you know, every narcissist is mirror hungry. In other words, uh, his audience is his mirror, but he said their followers are ideal hungry. In other words, um, the narcissistic leader meets certain needs, fundamental needs in his or her followers, um, a need for security, a need for belonging, a need for certainty. And so there's this, there's the idea of the ideal hungry follower that looks at the world and says, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And this is the only leader for security for belonging, for protection, for whatever it is, um, he's the one who will deliver it for me. And so there's this mutually sort of reinforcing dynamic between follower, uh, leader and follower. And so it's interesting. I, I think that I haven't done this work. I think there could be some really good work done uh, by those who, who might look at 
well, what are these ideal hungry followers looking for, whether they call themselves Christians or not, or uh, are in churches or not in churches or identify as Christian, but don't go to whatever it is. What's, what's the idea? What are they hungering for? Um, makes sense. And so maybe one of you guys want to write that book. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's because it, it's interesting that the, you know, we talk about, we've been talking about narcissism for the, uh, from the perspective of the benefit of the narcissist themselves of what they're protecting. But there are others who also benefit from that system, like others who get somebody who to follow somebody who, sure. you know, like for all their bluff and bluster, I know that that's the guy that's going to defend my beliefs yep. against the deep state and against all these like leftists that are trying to, yeah, make us all yep. wear dresses. And you know, it's <laughs> oh, is that a part of our agenda? Now we're going to make everybody wear dresses. Oh, that's okay. right. Wow. Yeah, until that's they find one. out they're the bride of Christ. <laughs> but, oh, sh sorry. Don't no, tell them that. That just that freaks them out. You know, <laughs> I always I can always throw that one out there. Sorry. Oh, too far, too far. That, well, this uh, is. Yeah, that's it. And this is where those who've you know been a part of churches or ministries or followed politicians like this, when their eyes are open to that dynamic, well, then they're going to have to do the work of looking at themselves and their own story and what they plug themselves into that leader for, you know, and again, it's, it's their, will they go on a journey of awareness? And will they seek humility and grow in curiosity? Uh, but I've worked with plenty of women and men who are survivors of narcissistic systems who wanted to sort of look at the narcissistic leader and blame them, but, but eventually had to sort of turn to themselves and say, so what did I need? What, what was I plugging into? And I think that takes a lot of courage to do that. So as we're seeing, you know, a lot of the traditional religious systems are, you know, not, not doing as well population wise these days, we're seeing decline in church attendance at, um, people are starting to find new ways of finding community. A lot of it is online through, you know, some of the groups we engage with. What are ways that people can build the, the groups that they're building now and try to, um, just be conscious of not building narcissism into the system? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think, you know, I, I'm not an expert in systems and building systems. I I've had this conversation with some folks who said, you know, we need to renounce power. We need to go to sort of egalitarian systems. And what I've often said by way of pushback is we all have power. Um, it's what we do with our power. Um, and so we need to be mindful of our power. And, and when we are in systems where we do have power, I, I have power um, in the institution I'm in as a white middle-aged male. Mm -hmm. um, we need to be cognizant of how we're using it. Um, and, and does our power um, exploit? or bless, you know? And mm. so that's the question that I think I asked myself and I want to ask institutions, am I one who is contributing to the empowerment of others, um, the humble use of my power, or am I exploitative in my power? And, and so uh, I, think, I, I think as you build systems, it's pretty inevitable, uh, whether, whether we're talking about individuals or, or systems, that th there will be this sense, which as they grow uh, in terms of their size and resources, they will gain power, but what's their relationship with power? Uh, what's their sense of awareness of that power? And I've seen in good, healthy systems, um, empowered leaders relinquish some of their power along the way or step out of, of, uh, of leadership and empower someone else. And those are, those are the beautiful stories, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, it sort of creates systems 
and structures that empower others. And I've seen it where people who are well-intentioned, who go in with, um, with pretty good theology and pretty good ideas, uh, uh, are, end up intoxicated with power. And I'm sure you've seen that as well too. And so, uh, it's easy to go down that road and we all have to do, as I say, over and over again, we have to do our work, got to do our inner work. Absolutely. Chuck, thank you so much for saying that. And we're, you know, getting close to our time, uh, but we would be remiss if we did not talk about religious abuse. And I, you're, uh, I think just this last point, you were touching up to it. So you do work in this space. And can you enlighten us a little bit about, not so much about the description of a religious abuse, uh, although if you want to throw that in there, but how, what are you doing? What work are you doing with that? So when we talk about spiritual abuse, religious abuse, we're talking about the exploitation of power, exploitation of others, right? And so, um, and I work, I work in systems, I work with denominations, I work with survivors of, of spiritual abuse, of religious abuse. And part of the work is, is naming uh, how abuse takes place and uh, bringing individuals and systems to accountability. Um, on the other side, what I'm working more with uh, today or write, currently writing on, because I think it's really important, is religious trauma. Um, so abuse is, is what happened. Um, reli religious trauma is what happens within, in our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies, our relationships, um, interpersonally, right? So, uh, and that, that's where the real healing takes place, right? And so we can hold uh, religious abusers accountable um, we can tell the story of what happened within within systems or among individuals, but how do we turn our attention to what happens within? And the title of my next book is actually Healing What's Within. It's that shift from what happened to you to what's happening within you. Mm, I love that. Um, I'm going to ask you a question um, that um, I have this, I have my own personal experience with religious uh, abuse and what's subsequent to the trauma because trauma comes from the abuse. Thankfully, my story is not an individual. It wasn't anything that was done to me physically or emotionally. It was just the system of what I learned about what was the Christian tradition and how it was going to harm me as being a queer person. So, you know, and, and it did a lot of damage, but I've, you know, I'm blessed and fortunate that I've been able to, to, to reconcile to that. It's, my point is, I feel like I'm one of the few, unfortunately, that, that I, was given the grace to, to be able to do this. Unfortunately, when somebody is traumatized, they give up on their, on their belief systems. Am I right to believe that? Have you seen any studies? So what work have you done as a therapist to, so what happens to that person that gets abused and traumatized? Where do they go? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I hope they find their way to a spiritual director, to a therapist who is trauma informed and who can hold space for them with a lot of empathy. Right. Yeah. And, uh, we're not there to impose the right beliefs, the right thoughts, but exactly because, you know, when you experience trauma, um, calls into question everything that you've known, everything you believed, everyone you've trusted. Right. And yes, that takes that. a while. All that, that deconstructive work takes a while to, to work through. Um, I don't want to put a timetable on it. It's a, it's yeah. a, an unfolding process. And so. Uh, but you need to work with someone who's going to honor you and honor that process and uh, honor your own unique woundedness, right? And yeah. not map their own sort of system or way of doing it onto you. And so, yeah, to find a safe, uh, trauma-informed 
therapist or spiritual director is really, really important in these circumstances, right? Yeah, absolutely, Chuck. Thank you for sharing that. And that's true because there's definitely hope there. And, and at that point that somebody has now started uh, healing from the, the trauma that uh, from my own personal experience, speaking first person, that then is what allowed me to then reopen the door of engaging the divine and me thinking about what is my framework of faith to where now I have a very healthy, uh, fulfilling faith system that works for me. It is not, you know, systematic. I mean, I take elements from that, but uh, as, as, as a friend of our program, uh, Alicia Crosby Mack will say, I am spiritually promiscuous and I love being that. <laughs> I'm wilderness, I'm in wilderness by design. Because that's where I find fulfillment to the divine's need. He works for me. Yeah. But I got there, thankfully. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I, I actually would love for this conversation to keep going. Every question I've got, I think it would have another like 45 minute answer. Um, so we, uh, we'd love to invite you to, to come back sometime to continue to talk about these topics. Yeah. Um, but we are at, at time. So just want to say. Thank you so much for your insights and uh, for the work that you do. Yeah. Um, do you have any upcoming work or events or anything that you want to tell our listeners about? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, this next book that it that I've I've written uh, will come out in October of 2024. Um, it's interesting because people sort of wanted me to do a follow up to the narcissism book. I didn't really want to do like a narcissism. 2.0 or 201, right? But um, as we've talked about, really turn the attention to how we negotiate trauma in our own lives. And so um, this is what I'm proud of. I, I probably put more into the writing and the formation of this than I've, I've done with anything else that I've written. So that, that's what's coming up in this, uh, in 2024. I'm excited about that. So thanks for letting me say that. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Chuck, again, I look forward to our paths crossing again. Uh, yeah. Fascinating conversation. I hope our listeners get as much out of this as I personally did. It's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on with us. And so with that, um, I guess it's time for us to call this episode a wrap. That's right. Thank you. And enjoy enjoy the snow. Enjoy. Uh... And your snow club. <laughs> yes. Appreciate it, guys. Take care. All right. Well, Chuck, take, take care. care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Love Live co-hosted by Mark Delcom and Kelly Wilson. All rights reserved. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and other popular podcast platforms. Go to RadicalLoveLive.com to learn more about us, watch recordings of our live events, and listen to our podcast. We also invite you to check out what Kelly and Mark are doing by going to our websites. Find Kelly at KellyWilson.com and Mark at MarkDelcom.com. This is Radical Love Live, where we explore faith outside the boxes.